Welcome to Migdal Dialogues, the podcast of Yeshivat Migdal Torah. My name is Jonathan Ziering, and I'm a Rebbe at Migdal. And my name is Daryl Ginsburg, and I'm a Rosh Hashiva at Migdal Torah. And today we're here to talk about really the type of questions that we ask at Migdal, what makes Migdal unique. Because at Migdal, we really try to ask the important philosophical questions that animate the lives we live as people, as Jews. And often by that, we mean the philosophical questions. So Ray Ginsburg, let's start with a very basic question about the big questions. What do you mean by those big questions and why are they important? That's an excellent question, John. When approaching this type of issue, it's important to understand that we're both human beings and Jews. As human beings, there are struggles that all of us have, questions we ponder, we want to understand why things are the way they are. We think about things like free will. We want to understand if we have meaning, what our meaning is in the universe. When it comes to being a religious Jew, we also have questions. We have questions about how do we understand the idea of the world to come? How does divine reward and punishment work? These are questions everyone universally struggles with. Whether you are a teenager, middle-aged, or older, either way, these are questions that all of us struggle with. So to me, it's extremely important that we do pursue some type of investigation and understanding what the ideas are behind these concepts. So I understand that these types of questions are important, whoever you are, Jewish, not Jewish. There are disciplines devoted to general philosophy, Jewish philosophy. For you, what is the difference between those two disciplines? I'm really happy you asked that question. I could tell you in the yeshiva, for example, we teach actually both subject areas. We will teach general philosophy and Jewish philosophy. And in it should not come off as if they are two completely separate institutions. Of course, there's a tremendous amount of overlap. However, as an example, a general philosophy issue might be arguments for the existence of God. And we would discuss various arguments concerning God's existence. When it comes to Jewish philosophy, so there we would discuss something like divine reward and punishment um, or the idea of hashkacha, divine providence. That's something more localized within Jewish philosophy. But I would argue that both systems feed off each other. The principles that apply to general philosophy will also apply to Jewish philosophy as well. And for just as an example, from a historical standpoint, we know so many incredible Jewish philosophers, people like Sajagaon or people like the Rambam were well-versed both in Jewish philosophy and in general philosophy. And the way they write reflects both of those traditions. You know, I'm really surprised to hear you say that because I understand that maybe reward and punishment is a Jewish question, but do you really think that how do we know that God exists is not a Jewish one? I mean, I remember that when I was in YU, I had, we actually both had this professor, Professor Johnson, and he was shocked that in smicha, we don't spend more time asking about how do we know that God exists? Because of what else do you do if you're a rabbi? Isn't that a Jewish thing to do? I 100% agree. So let me clarify. I do believe that the idea of God is something central to Jewish philosophy, but I think I can give you an example that would help demonstrate where the divide is between general and Jewish philosophy. An example might be the Kalam cosmological argument. Before you go any further, can you clarify what a Kalam philosopher is and what the cosmological argument is? In a nutshell, that argument deals with the idea of an external cause bringing the universe into existence. It is an argument that's become much more popular today, primarily because of the discovery of the Big Bang. What's important, though, is that the argument brings you to a conclusion that there's an external cause that brought the universe into existence, but it says nothing of a Jewish God. It says nothing of a God who's involved with the universe. So whereas the Kalam cosmological argument can bring us to a greater understanding of a creator, it doesn't bring us any closer to the idea of a Jewish God. So to me, that's where the divide lies. There are very, very good arguments, compelling arguments, strong arguments for the existence of God. There are different types of arguments that bring about the idea of the Jewish God. And of course, and this is where I think the two merge together, one leads into the other. Once you've built up your ideas of God's existence, you can then move into, so to speak, the more specific idea of the Jewish God. 
But when you do that, do you use the same tools that you do to understand the general philosophical question? Or are there different tools in your toolbox to ask about the Jewish God rather than God? I do think there are different approaches and yes, different toolboxes that are required when it comes to discussing these issues. For example, uh, when it comes to the cosmological argument, that deals with a more traditional philosophical type of argument. Whereas for instance, the Kuzari argument or what's known as the argument from Sinai relies on a much different methodology to come to its conclusion. You want to clarify what that means? The Kuzari principle is an argument that discusses the rationale for believing in the validity of the event at Sinai. Meaning the fact that Jews today believe in God giving us the Torah is a justified belief. And the same methods that we use when it comes to determining any other events in history should also apply to what happened at Sinai. That's a very different type of argument than, say, something like the cosmological argument or most other arguments for the existence of God. So do you think that the Kuzari argument couldn't work for someone who wasn't Jewish, for someone who wasn't committed to the Jewish philosophical system, but was just committed to general philosophy? Is there something different in the methodology that it isn't universalizable? I think that if you presented, for example, the Kuzari argument to an atheist, he would not be swayed whatsoever because he's not ready yet to even discuss an idea of a Jewish God when the basic idea of God hasn't been demonstrated to him. So my opinion, starting first for someone, let's say, who's a non-believer with an idea of an existence of God would be the first step. It would be a different language to now start speaking to an atheist why the Kuzari argument is a valid argument. So I just want to clarify, because you said two different things there. First, you said that if you talk to an atheist, he wouldn't be ready for the argument of the Kuzari. And then you said it's speaking a different language. So is it that you think that these are two completely different disciplines or is it that you think that one builds on the other? I think one builds off on the other. I think that often in philosophy, we stagger our arguments. We first have to have a foundation. And then once we have the foundation in place, we can build more specific arguments off of it. So I think in this case, that to me is how it would be structured. Okay, so let's just summarize what we have until now. So we talked about the fact that Jewish philosophy and philosophy at least as most people study them, are different. But fundamentally, you believe that they are in conversation. And essentially, they do use the same tools. But realistically, when we're talking about philosophy and we're talking about Jewish philosophy, the types of arguments that we discuss when we're learning, quote unquote, philosophy, are those that we could talk about with anybody, believer, not believer, whereas when we get to the types of questions that are normally considered Jewish philosophy, that can only be discussed if we have the pre-existent basis that we already established with the general philosophical questions and we're dealing with someone who's a believer. But still, fundamentally, you don't believe that the methodologies are completely different. Is that right? That is 100% correct. I would add that what unifies the two is they're both trying to seek out truth. Both Jewish philosophy and philosophy are both trying to understand truth. I know it's a grand statement to say truth, um, especially in the 21st century, but ultimately that's what each methodology is trying to achieve. So they do share that goal, that goal of trying to understand what truth is. So I understand that. But, you know, there's something interesting you said before that when you discussed the cosmological argument, you noted that it's become more popular now that people think about the Big Bang. But then when you summarized, you said philosophy. But I think most people, when they hear the Big Bang, and arguments that are based on the Big Bang, they think science. So do you think science is part of this picture? Do you think it's part of philosophy? It's related to philosophy? You know, I know this is something that we discuss a lot at Migdal, but can we maybe clarify how you think philosophy and science work together if they do? From the guys that I speak with, this really is a critical issue. There's this belief that there's a friction between science and philosophy. 
as if they are two institutions that are in contrast to each other, that are in conflict with each other. Often when I have these conversations with these individuals, I start off by explaining to them that there's an area in philosophy called the philosophy of science, which is really about understanding why we believe in the scientific method. Why do we trust it? Why do we trust something called inductive reasoning? Inductive reasoning, in a nutshell, is the concept that after we see a certain number of experiences, we then extrapolate, we then use what's called inductive reasoning to assume it will continue. So my favorite example is when a person has a headache, they take an Advil. They're relying on what's called inductive reasoning. They know that Advil's worked a million times in the past, and it's reasonable, very highly probable to assume it will continue to work. So the scientific method itself is really rooted in inductive reasoning. So one of the first things I discuss with those people who ask me about this potential conflict is, well, we have to get our terms clear. For example, the Big Bang is the prevalent theory today of how the universe started. It is the best explanation we have of how things work, but it's not a fact. It simply is the most reasonable theory. I think that to me is a very important clarification to make. In the scientific realm, we're dealing with theories, not with brute facts. So rather than discuss the conflict, I think it's first important to understand that the scientific method itself, meaning science, is rooted in some way in philosophy. You need to be a philosopher first, so to speak, before you can even appreciate how science works. At the same time, as we discover more about the universe, as we discover more about how things work, we're able to go ahead and then apply that to our philosophical understanding. So just as an example, when science discovers the idea of the Big Bang, we can then apply that in, for instance, a theological basis. The Big Bang means there was a moment of creation, so to speak, a singularity. The universe came into existence. That has philosophical and theological effects. That is something that is very important for us to bring into the philosophical realm and understand how does this change the way we look at the world? How does it change our pursuit of truth? You know, it's interesting that you highlight, on the one hand, the importance of science and bring it into the philosophical conversation while recognizing that not everything we think of as science is settled fact. Do you think that's dangerous, bringing things that aren't settled into our conversation about how we know that Judaism is true or what it tells us about Judaism? Because what if we build a theory about Torah based on the Big Bang and it turns out in 50 years that the Big Bang isn't true? Then, then what do we do? What have we lost by building our belief system, something that you acknowledge is not necessarily true. It's a very, very challenging issue. And it's something that I personally struggle with. On the one hand, it is critical. It is critical that we are able to investigate and understand and analyze why we believe in the things that we do. At the same time, I do agree that there's a danger involved. There's a danger where as we latch on to, let's say, the most prevalent scientific explanation for something, you're correct, that could change tomorrow. And then what are we left with? There's a danger where a person who's uh, left to their own devices, so to speak, will pick up every book they have on philosophy. It'll just be mass confusion. They really won't come out with any clear conclusion. And you're correct. It's very likely that in their religious pursuit, they may come up to a conclusion that is against religious philosophy. However, what I think is that in the right environment, with the proper type of guidance, alongside specific authors that are out there who help explain how to pursue this path in a relatively to use your term, safe manner, I think actually could be a very rewarding experience. So while I do acknowledge there's a danger, I believe that if it's done in a certain type of environment, under a certain type of guidance, with certain types of authors, that danger is minimized. So do you want to explain, like, what does that environment look like? And what type of authors do you think do this well? At Migdal, we have created an environment that is uh, very safe 
and allows students to explore many of their philosophical questions. So for example, many of our Abayim are well-schooled in philosophy and can really guide the guys insofar as the types of questions they're asking, what relevant answers there are, and why these answers are compelling. For example, we teach Socratic logic. In Socratic logic, we really teach the guys how to construct arguments to begin with so they can identify what's considered to be a strong philosophical argument and what's not. I also think that there are some incredible authors out there. For example, Rabbi Dr. Samuel Liebens is a phenomenal author who has really brought a lot to philosophical discussion. He definitely is great when he comes to visit us at Migdal. You know, I know you love him and I love him and our students really love him. Maybe you want to just give me an example, maybe a small not super complex philosophical question and how you would analyze it in a way that you think would be effective incorporating the best of philosophy, of science, of Jewish philosophy. What example jumps to your mind is like a paradigm of an important question for a modern Jew to ask and and how would you go about answering? And maybe that'll bring together some of the ideas we're talking about because I know for me a little bit, this is uh, is up in the air and I think it would help me to, to concretize it, to ground it if you just gave an example. So I think a very good example that brings together lots of the things that we've discussed would be what's known as a teleological argument for God's existence. The idea behind that argument is the concept of what's called anthropic coincidences, fancy term. What it basically means is that the universe is fine-tuned for human existence. Now, there's all sorts of reasons why that's the case, and there's lots of physics that backs this up, but the basic idea is that it seems like the universe really is here for us. That being the case, in fleshing out that type of argument, we take a little bit of philosophy itself, what the basis is for teleology or intent, how that works, alongside understanding physics today. The physics of today is what allows us to develop that philosophical argument. So they're able to work in tandem. So, so far, I I get how we got the science and how we got the philosophy. The science tells us that there's something in our study of the world that seems to point to the fact that the way the world exists is particularly amenable to human beings. The philosophical move is, well, what does that direction show us about the nature of the world? Now, how would you take that and now make it Jewish? I think the first step, though, is to understand the fact that we notice this as an issue altogether. The fact that we see these things called anthropic coincidences, this fine-tuning of the universe, makes us question. That's step one. Once we start questioning, the next step is, what do we do with that question? What's interesting is that there are two directions people have gone in today. One direction is, and some would argue is the simplest explanation, is that there is a creator, a God. The other explanation is famously known as the multiverse. And some argue that the multiverse theory, which is the idea that there are countless or infinite number of universes, each one a little bit different than the other, that in a sense is an explanation for why the universe is fine-tuned to us, which means it's not really fine-tuned to us. Rather, it's just one of many examples. But the fact that that direction is being pursued is in truth a philosophical approach. So we're left with sort of like a fork in the road. Now, it would seem- No fun fact about that. I discovered that- as deep as a philosophical issue this is, the idea of the multiverse, it was actually created first for DC Comics and only then adopted by philosophers. I I did not know that. That's fascinating. That is fascinating to know. So as an example, when you discuss the Jewish God, well, Judaism places a tremendous amount of importance on humanity, on mankind, that we are unique in who we are, that we have a soul or mind, and that separates us from not just the rest of, let's say, from the times of Aristotle, the animal kingdom, But you can argue from today's physics, from the rest of the universe itself. I often tell our students that what makes human beings so unique is that we're both part of the universe in the sense that we are constructed from atoms, but we also can relate to the universe. We can study it. We can observe it. 
So I think the idea of the theological argument does point to an idea of a Jewish God. It does point to the concept of a God who not only created the universe, but gave man the ability to analyze said universe, to discover the infinite wisdom of the creator himself. Let me just make sure I got this straight. The scientific background here helps us understand the order to the universe and the fact that so much of the universe seems to point in the direction of a purpose. The philosophical stage is now asking, well, what does that show us? And does it show a centrality of man to the universe, the fact that the earth is so fine-tuned, as it were, to human beings? And then the Jewish question is, well, if philosophically we've concluded that the universe is aimed at humanity, well, what does Judaism have to say about the role of humanity as opposed to, let's say, the animal kingdom in the world? And once we've built these two layers from the scientific evidence through the philosophical background, we can then take the Jewish sources to give voice, to explain, to frame the conclusions that we've derived from those first two stages. Am I getting it right? That's so much better than the way I said it. Okay, so we've talked about a lot, and some of these issues are so complicated and take a lifetime of study. But let's say you have someone who's just beginning to think about their place in this world. They're in high school. They're in Shana Aleph. Where would you start them? What questions would you think they should start studying? How would you suggest they go about it? Is there a book you would point to, a shir you would point to, a YouTube clip? How would you suggest that someone who really thinks these questions are important but hasn't begun their study, how would you tell them to begin? I think the beginning point should be in two different areas. The first one, as I mentioned before, is to begin to study Socratic logic, meaning to begin to study how to construct arguments and how to understand how we think. So not necessarily to pick up the dialogues of, of Plato and Correct. Socrates. Yes. In fact, I would argue it's very difficult to even appreciate the dialogues of Plato without understanding what the forms of arguments are supposed to be like. So I think the first thing is logic teaches us how to think. That's the first step. One author put it beautifully. He said that the same way that you need a telescope to appreciate the stars, you really need logic to appreciate philosophy. So to me, that would be step one. In fact, people don't often know that the Ramam's first safer was actually an introduction to logic, as almost if he's telling us before you study anything, you must first understand logic. When it comes to philosophy, it really depends on the student I'm speaking to. I definitely think that Sajagon, his major philosophical work, is an excellent place to start, especially his introduction, uh, where he really explains uh, how knowledge works and how we access knowledge around us. I also think that there are other authors, for instance, uh, an Edward Fazer, who does an excellent job in developing arguments for God. He takes arguments that were written centuries ago by various philosophers and really presents them in a 21st century format. So to me, those are excellent places to start when it comes to really going down this road of philosophy. Okay, you know, that's really helpful. It's a lot to digest, and I think it'll uh, take us all a little bit of time to take it in. But I think to that end, it's worth noting that this is just the first of a series of podcasts where we're going to discuss these types of questions and the way that we deal with them at Migdal. And it's not only books that can be helpful, but conversations with people who think about these issues and have thought about these issues can also be helpful. And what we're going to try to do in the coming months is to try to have those conversations between the teachers at Migdal, between the students at Migdal. And we also want you to join in the conversation also. In this podcast, it was a conversation between the two of us, and future conversations will be between other faculty. We really want to hear from you, because everybody who gets involved in the conversation has something to add and forces us to think clearer and better about the things that are important. So if you have feedback, please reach out to us. We can figure out what our next conversation should be, and we can think together with you about these all-important questions. 
Please remember to subscribe to Migdal Dialogues on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like and follow the Migdal Atara Facebook page, our Instagram account, and please share this podcast so more people will discover Migdal Dialogues. We thank everyone who listens, and especially those who help us by sharing and helping promote the Migdal Dialogues podcast. You can also check out our website at migdalhatara.org, where you can check out our shiurim, the types of questions that we ask at Migdal, and you can also check out many of our shiurim on Wayu Torah and hear about the conversations that we've actually had at Migdal. Thank you for listening, and see you next time on Migdal Dialogues. Migdal Dialogues.